Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. On this episode, I talk to Ashley Hales, the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs. We talk through some of the challenges of suburban life and the opportunities we have to pursue Jesus in a suburban context. Well, welcome everybody to season three, episode 19 of the Engaging Culture podcast. Pastor Brian with you. And today I am joined by Ashley Hales. Ashley is, let's see, pastor's wife, mother of four, PhD in English from the University of Edinburgh. I hope I'm saying that correctly. She is the author of Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. And she's the host of the Finding Holy Podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So I first heard of your book because uh, I was my wife and I were having dinner with some friends of ours, Anthony and Julie Seiler, and I saw it on his counter. And I am, I like to say curious, others would say nosy. So I immediately picked it up <laughs> and was intrigued by the title. And the more I read, just got, starting at the table of contents, uh, first of all, you've got very clever chapter titles. Uh, that, I like them. <laughs> that intrigued me even more. And I, I knew within about five seconds, this was a book I, I absolutely had to read. So, so I got it and, and I read it and have just loved it and uh, wanted you to be on this podcast because I believe just in the, con- in the, in the kind of our context here in Placer County, suburban Sacramento, so much of what you has to have to say can be valuable uh, in our context up here. So uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just to get started, can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the book? Uh, why did you write a book about holiness in the suburbs? Yeah, you know, what was fascinating is both my husband and I grew up here in South Orange County, in Orange County, California. So we're just, you know, what, 15 hours down the road from you? But yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we grew up here and when we kind of experienced a call to church plant back home, you know, it made a lot of sense on paper. Um, it made a lot of sense kind of in our spirits as we kind of walked that road together. Um, and yet when we actually landed on the ground, I found myself going, oh my gosh, where am I? It kind of brought back all of those awkward high school, like lunch tray carrying moments <laughs> where... You're like, where do I fit? Who are my people? Um, and in a place that we assumed, oh, we're from here, it should be really easy to kind of assimilate. I realized, oh, you know, all of our life experiences and the different places we lived in our education, um, I was obviously different from the teenager who left uh, the suburbs. And I needed to figure out what does the gospel have to say for me right now as a grown woman um, who loves Jesus, loves his church and wants more people to come to know him in suburbia because I had so many wonderful friends um, and even just the stories that we hear about the way that you serve God is to like move overseas or do something really big with your life that you have to change the world. And I knew that that wasn't the only narrative of faith faithfulness in the Christian life. So I wanted to explore that. Yeah. I, I want to ask you more about that later because I, that was an element of your book that really resonated with me. In fact, I quoted your book yesterday in a devotional in our uh, our, our staff meeting, just about mm-hmm. this idea of kind of the the change the world narrative. There's some some benefit mm-hmm. to that, but there are some challenges as well. And and you're right; it's not the only story. And sometimes, what can be communicated if we if we overemphasize the change the world story is those small acts of faithfulness. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
broadly speaking, and we'll get into some of the details here as, as we mm-hmm. go along, what are some of the unique challenges of suburban life uh, in mm-hmm. terms of what are some of the challenges that make it difficult to quote unquote, find holy? Right. You know, I think the the problem we've talked about a lot is that here, at least where we are kind of in a more affluent suburb, yeah. or at least people posturing towards affluence sure. is that um, it, it takes a really long time for people to naturally kind of come to the end of their rope. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's when like tragedy or trauma kind of comes um, right into the scene uh, that people realize, oh gosh, I can't actually do this life thing on my own. Yeah. Um, and for those of us who haven't been raised, um, you know, in kind of a prosperous environment, um, we're maybe a little bit quicker, um, to realize that we, we need God. And, you know, it's why Jesus said it's easier, right. For, for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think we need to take that seriously is that our, our affluence, or at least, you know, the rat race trying to kind of live this good life of comfort is actually malforming our souls. And so things like, you know, a focus on the self, individualism and busyness and safety and consumerism that my, you know, my identity is really tied up in what I can purchase uh, are the things that kind of eat away at our souls and lead us away from God instead of towards him. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. One thing we, we talk about up here and Roseville, Rockland, it's a, it's a fairly affluent area. Uh, um, I, I've spent some time in Orange County, so, some similarities, uh, certainly. We say there's still pain here. The pain is just hidden. Yeah. Uh, how have you seen that play out in, in, in your own context? Because what's interesting for us is that we say the pain is hidden. And then yet when we are able to talk about from our pulpit or other places, you talk about pain, you talk about shame, you talk about the gospel mm-hmm. freeing you from these things. It, it yeah. so clearly resonates here. Yes. How have you yes. seen that play out in, in your own context in Orange County? Mm-hmm. You know, I was just even having a conversation with um, a woman who isn't a believer the other day and talking to her about my next book project, actually, and how, you know, this narrative of freedom and be all you can be. And, you know, how does that it's just exhausting and, yeah. and saying I was just telling her, you know, the story, I believe that Jesus came to live a perfect life for us, frees us from this rat race of you need to be the perfect wife. You need to be the perfect mother. You need to like volunteer in your kid's classroom. You need to, you know, make sure you're working out and creating nutritious meals and planning parties, like, and yeah. all of these sorts of things that we feel we have to be perfect at. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just one of the ways in which we see some of that pain of trying to live up to this narrative. But, you know, we've seen people's marriages fall apart and health problems and, Pain is obviously not a respecter of whatever amount of money that we have in the bank. Um, And so the challenge, right, for those of us who love Jesus is is to stay in proximity to people so that when those pain points come up, um, that we're able to actually speak the gospel to our friends and neighbors. Yeah. Wow. That's so good. Talking to Ashley Hales, the book is Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Pick it up wherever you buy your books. It's excellent. Now, the way the book is set up, you identify sort of a challenge of suburban life, individualism, yeah. consumerism, the need to be, uh, the kind of the challenges of hospitality, this and that. I'm curious to know, just for you as a as a person who is living right. out what you're writing about, and you talk about this in the book, just trying to make sense of all of these challenges of suburban life. Which chapter was easiest for you to write, and which was the most difficult? Mm. 
You know, I think hospitality, the hospitality chapter was probably the easiest because that's just sort of been how we, my husband and I have done our life together since we were married. And even when we were first married, we hosted a Bible study in in our little apartment with borrowed furniture. Um, When we lived in Scotland for graduate school, we had like the teeniest, dankest little flat. And yet that became you know, an important place for us to invite people in. Um, even though it was kind of moldy and freezing, um, (laughs) um, you know, like, so that's become just sort of the way we do things and it's become habit at this point. Um, and yet to realize, you know, there's times and seasons where you need to kind of back off from that or focus on how am I being hospitable to myself or my, in my marriage or my family. Um, but I think the hardest one for me to write where I was a little bit worried about it was, uh, the chapter on safety, Hmm. um, where I was like, Oh, I could potentially get reamed about (laughs) talking about our idolization of safety and our uh, kind of our idolization of the nuclear family. Hmm. Uh, Yeah. I mean, well, cause it is certainly Uh, a suburban idol. That is, that is, that is, I think beyond any real reasonable dispute, but at the same time, it it does seem a little strange to, in any sense, come across as anti-safety. But of course, there are intermediate positions between sort of, you know, hyper helicopter parenting. And we're not tossing our children out in the middle of the street and say, go figure that out. Right, exactly. So, uh, but no, I I enjoyed your chapter on safety and and I thought it was a helpful, it was a helpful corrective to, I think, some of our impulses that, that perhaps go a bit too far and can interfere, frankly, with the the flourishing and growth of our children. So, uh, right. yeah, can, can I see how right. it was a risk? Sure, but uh, I think it was a, a risk worth taking. Yeah, you know, and there's um, a, a great book called The Price of Privilege, where the author kind of looks at affluent societies and kind of um, ways in which, like, the parent parental expectations and kind of child expectations, and then having all kind of all the resources to fulfill those expectations is actually leaving children in suburbia, affluent children, a lot more prone for mental health problems and suicide than actually children in dire poverty. Yeah, it's it's amazing to, to look at some of the research. And I'm reading a different book right now that has actually cited some similar statistics. And it is amazing to me the prevalence of some of these challenges that you've described and how much more prevalent they are in like you said, affluent areas versus mm-hmm. impoverished areas. And it's, it's right. anyway, it's, it's, it's quite startling. Now, uh, before I ask you more about your book, I want to ask you just a couple of questions about uh, your podcast. Uh, Finding Holy yeah. is the podcast uh, for our listeners. Uh, check it out, subscribe. It's, it's, it's excellent. I've listened to a whole bunch of episodes and I've a million things I could ask you about, but I, I want to ask you one sort of funny question and then one yeah. Uh, more, hopefully more substantive question. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things I immediately <laughs> loved about your podcast was your quirky, funny question that you ask at least all of your guests in season one. I haven't listened to yeah, every episode yeah. in two and three. Yeah. You ask them about their laundry routine. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think I understand why you do that. And I think it's, 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 funny and it, it makes the point, but, but talk a little bit about why you do that. You're talking to all these people about these huge ideas and that you right. end with, so how do you do your laundry in your household? <laughs> right. Well, one, I love that it just humanizes everybody. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, most of the time, you know, you're listening, you know, even like you're listening to your pastor on a Sunday morning and you're like, wow, you have so many great insights and you must have this like walk with God that's so <laughs> pure and amazing and deep. And yeah. yet like they're normal people. And sure. so part of, part of asking about the laundry routine is, is to just humanize people and say that no matter what we're doing or all of the thoughts in our heads or 
the kind of depth of the work in our souls that we are all human, right? We're limited mortal people who have to do things like the laundry. Right. Um, but another thing is too, is for me, I always, I need to know the why behind things often. Mm-hmm. Um, I can get super bummed about like the, the laundry, right? Oh, <laughs> in yeah. stores, and just the monotony of it. Totally. And so if I can connect to a bigger why behind something that feels really mundane to me, I'm able to see the beauty of it, the, yeah. like the story of it. And so part of that is I love to hear what other people do, if they connect that or if they just, or it becomes kind of a grudging, yeah. a grudging uh, sort of chore to do. Yeah. So, and you know, it really did start from um, Kathleen Norris, who's a Catholic writer, has a book um, called Liturgy, Liturgy, Laundry, and Women's Work, I believe, which is a short little essay. Um, And she talks about she came to faith, back to faith, when she was at a Catholic church and noticed the priest, like they clean out the chalice after um, communion. And so she's like, he's doing the dishes. And it kind of like exploded her mind of like both the mundane and the holy, right, in the same space. So I love to try to do that too with my guests. Oh, that's beautiful. Love it. Love it. Now, recently, you and your husband, who is a uh, pastor of uh, Resurrection OC, that's the name of your church, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. You have, have sat down and recorded some episodes on suburban secularism, uh, yeah. which were fascinating in a whole bunch of levels. Uh, your husband won me over immediately by saying that he's a fan of uh, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer yeah. in this cultural yeah, moment. Yeah. Love those guys. Yeah. Just finished a Mark yeah. Sayers book a couple weeks ago. And yeah, the book uh, on hurry. It's good. Uh, I haven't read that one. No, I oh, okay. was reading Mark Sayers' um, uh, Strange Days. It was really, really good, but I want to okay. read John yeah, Mark's that book. Yeah, well. that was John Mark Comer's book. Yes, yeah. no, all, all good. Um, so you were talking about secularism, and mm-hmm. you were saying how uh, oftentimes we think of secularism as being urban, uh, being associated with the political left. And I think that's all certainly true. Mm-hmm. But you and your husband, you're in a suburban, uh, politically right-leaning context, which in that regard, very similar to the context here in Placer County. And mm-hmm. you've discovered a different kind of, of secularism. Uh, can you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? And even sort of the way that, that you've defined secularism in the episode, I, I thought was pretty fascinating. Yeah, we talk about secularism really as, you know, that life can be great without God. Yeah. Um, one way that Mark Sayers talks about it in the podcast, This Cultural Moment, is, you know, wanting the benefits of the kingdom without the king. And so, Mm. you know, we can think of the ways that Christianity has kind of made life more just, like for cultures across the world, um, you know, that women and children are not enslaved, right? That we all have identity and value as image bearers of God. Um, And so, but now I think, you know, we sort of, we try to, we take all those ideals of justice and identity and meaning and purpose, and we've taken God out of the equation. And so really though, we tend to think when we think of the word secularism, we tend to think it, you know, well, one, we think of it as separate from sacred. Um, And so everything that has to do with God is on one end of one box and everything that has to do with things that aren't of God, you know, our normal life um, is another box. And first of all, we don't see that sacred secular divide in the Bible. um, And, you know, that we need to kind of keep getting our lives back together kind of as as a holistic story. Um, But we see a kind of a secularism of the right as well, which means not simply like 
I, I don't, I'm going to like have intellectual arguments ex- against the existence of God that we sure. would see kind of on the left in a kind of postmodern worldview. Yeah. But also we see it in, we want the benefits of God without actually God in suburbia. And what that often looks like is I can do life just fine on my own. Thanks God. I'm going to make sure that I put all of my effort into idolizing my family, organizing my calendar around my kids' youth sports, and that really my source of satisfaction and identity is in my promotions and what's in my 401k. Yeah. And and I think it's interesting how, like you said, oftentimes we think of secularism as, yeah, these sort of arguments against God or a right. or a kind of overt lack of belief. But mm-hmm. what you're describing is not an outright denial of God. But it is, you're right. right. It's this sense of sort of, I have my act together and I am pursuing satisfaction mm-hmm. apart from him. Now you sit me down and say, do you believe in God? I may or may right. not answer yes, but it's right. still a secular mentality that can very easily <laughs> creep into, into yes. suburban life. Right. And it's like, you know, this is the story around which our lives are orbiting practically. Yeah. Um, and so even if we can check all the boxes of belief, we haven't like the real gospel hasn't gotten into our bones that affects how we spend our money. What do we do with our time where our desires and affections and loves are oriented towards? Uh, They're really just all about self-preservation, which is a secular way of thinking and living. Right. That's And that's a jarring realization I think to come to as we can evaluate (laughs) our own lives. Like it's very, it's very uncomfortable. Who me secular? No. Uh, but, but obviously there's, there is, uh, I think there's some grace from God and even, even having to process that reality of how much we've given into a a secular mindset and, and just again, how it can look different in the suburbs than where it might look in a different context. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, that's the first step, right? To being able to move towards a gospel identity is to acknowledge, oh gosh, I have not realized how infiltrated I am and my own heart is into this story. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely true. Now I think one, one thing that, um, that is not only present in your podcast, as you talk about kind of, you're, you're very, very clear on wanting to give just little application points that are that mm-hmm. are actually doable, like things we can actually do to start to move right. things forward. But you do yeah. this in the book as well. At the end of, mm-hmm. of the chapters, you give some practices. And on some of those chapters, you call them counter liturgies, yeah. uh, or uh, kind of counter liturgies to the ways that we can avoid getting sucked into the traps of the suburbs. Uh, why did you choose the word counter liturgy? And then what did you, mm-hmm. you mean by it? You know, I think, um, and it's, Probably some of it comes from my background in English, but I think we really live our lives by stories. Um, We've kind of bought into stories and whether or not we're conscious of them, um, they really shape what we do and what we choose to say yes to and what we choose to say no to. Um, And really our culture, you know, through advertising, through songs, through um, TV and music, all of these things are creating in us a a particular story. And another way of thinking about story is as a liturgy. You know, if you Mm -hmm. think of um, a liturgy of a worship service is Mm -hmm. a way that we enter into the story of the gospel that, you know, it has whether or not your church is kind of a higher liturgy or a lower liturgy, there's there's an order, right, of doing doing the church service. And and, and so the, the question for me is, how do we kind of get the story of the gospel, the liturgy of the gospel into our real lives and not just simply like what we participate 
in on Sundays. And if, you know, the culture, the world is telling us very covertly, this is the story that of the good life that'll make you happy. What are small, very small, low bar practice points that we can begin to say, no, this is the story that this is the liturgy that I want to stake my life on. Yeah. And, and, and I think even the, what I, what I like about the way you frame them, not only in the book, but also in the podcast is, is these are practices that, uh, kind of like you said, they're, they're doable. They're things we can actually right. do. They're not, you know, you need to uproot everything in your life, right. <laughs> right. but they're practices that, and, and even, um, your husband Bryce talked about this on, on a recent episode I listened to. He said, mm-hmm. he talked about how, uh, the, the counter liturgy of reading Psalm one mm-hmm. before you check your email in the morning. Right. Uh, which yeah. is a beautiful psalm. And he said something mm-hmm. to the effect of like, it's not going to make a difference tomorrow, but right. over the course of a year or more, you know, you'll be a less anxious person and all of that. Right. And, and yeah. I like that, that mindset of, okay, these are small practices mm-hmm. where we can kind of play the long game and, and God can use these practices to bring about transformation. Right. And it, it gives you a lot less pressure, right? Yeah. Like, oh gosh, I have to get something out of my quiet time today or it's not worth it. And really what that's saying is, God, I'm just trying to view you for what you can do for me or what kind of emotional high you can give me versus like, I'm in relationship with you in the same way that, you know, maybe our relationship with our spouse, sometimes, yeah, you go out on a date night and it's awesome. And other times you get in a fight on the way to the (laughs) date. And other times you're like watching a show together or cooking side by side and it's just normal life in the same way. That's what it looks like to live life, not only with the people of God, but with God himself. And so so yeah, we just need something small and it doesn't have to be hugely transformative, which just means we can kind of take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit. Yeah. And I love it. I love what you said. It takes the pressure off a little bit, which is, which there's plenty of pressure. <laughs> we don't need right. to be unnecessary. We don't need unnecessary pressure. Yeah. growth happening faster. I know. <laughs> so uh, I, as I was preparing for this interview, I'm, you know, going look back and looking through the books and, and, and I, you know, joked with you, I've got a million questions I want to ask. So I'm just going to yeah. pick and choose. Obviously, at the end of the uh, day, people need to just get this book and read it. And once again, it's called thanks. Finding Holy <laughs> in the Suburbs. Get it wherever you buy your books. But I just want to pick and choose and ask a few questions about some of the specific topics uh, that you brought up. So in the first chapter, you talk about consumerism, uh, which in mm-hmm. my opinion, one of those things that is so easy to see in somebody else but difficult to see in the mirror. And obviously lots of things fall into that category. (laughs) Uh, And and you say this, you say that finite things not only leave me hungry, but also create ways of being or liturgies that move me away from God. Mm -hmm. Um, My question is, uh, how does consumerism move us away from God and how can we counteract that? Yeah, Um, great question. So I, you know, I think, all of these kind of idols of the suburbs, whether it's consumerism or individualism or busyness or safety, when we look to like Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City is fond of saying, you know, when we look at something um, that's a good thing, right? Being able to afford something or, you know, buying new bed sheets at Target, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, that that is the thing that I believe in the moment will satisfy this like angst that's building up inside of me, or, you know, I got in an argument with someone or I'm feeling just dissatisfied with my life. So I'm just going to go, go solve that emotional problem by buying something, then it becomes an idol. Um, And so consumerism leads us away from God because we begin to create habits in our lives that when I feel sad, lonely, angry, confused, you know, worthless, unseen, unloved, um, 
sign will be the answer instead of bringing all of that to Jesus. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that you also said that buying can become our new favorite form of worship, Mm -hmm. um, which is, is a, is a profound way of thinking about our purchasing decisions. And, and I think a lot Mm -hmm. of us in suburban contexts have had that experience of sort of, um, I don't know, the quick fix of buying something to make us feel better. Uh, Mm -hmm. you've touched on this a little bit already, but how else can we identify if, buying, because buying things, like you said, is not necessarily wrong. I mean, it's just part of life. How can right. we recognize if if we are treating buying in sort of a worshipful mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think um, one question might be to just try to think through, you know, are there, is there any kind of margin in my day um, or am I rushing around from one thing to another? And so even just creating little pockets of margin so we, we could kind of step back and go, huh, how do I feel? You know, like, yeah. um, because I think we don't even realize, you know, when we are going through the drive-thru or getting another Starbucks or, you know, going to Target to like satisfy this deep spiritual hunger for God. Yeah. Um, and so even saying, okay, I'm going to put in my phone, you know, and a buffer between all of my activities so that we can at least begin to slow down enough to ask our questions of ourselves to be like, am I actually purchasing this just because it feels good, you know, or, um, or am I trying, or even just saying, okay, let's say give yourself a no shop month (laughs) or, um, or, or like that could be one way to do it. Um, I have a friend who that's how her whole like Instagram presence started. She, she gave herself a no shop month and said, okay, I'm going to be creative with what I have um, and see, see how many like different outfits I can come up with. And so there, there are ways to kind of slow ourselves down or kind of detox from some of our automatic habits, yeah. um, like margin, like not shopping, um, just even asking a question um, every time you go into Target or wherever the place is. I don't know what it is for guys like Home Depot. Maybe. Still, still Target. Uh, <laughs> right, probably. Yeah, 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 there's like cool fat, there's yeah. cool dude fashion now at Target. Yeah. But, hey, when um, I walk into Target, yeah. I, I, I have this like conversation with myself in the parking lot of like rehearsing, yeah. what am I here for? Right. Focus on That's that. That's good. Very good. Yeah, and I it, love that. You know, and it's like, that is what we're, you are about to get attacked by all sorts of things you want to buy. Yes, right. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, a- yeah. And it's not to say that you can't, you know, get sales and totally. less people, right? You yeah. know, but but to say, and it's not not that we're saying just be austere and never buy anything. Right. But I think it's, it's important to question our habits occasionally to realize what we're doing and why. Yeah, no, that's well said. You also talk about individualism quite a bit in the book. It is is mm-hmm. obviously very easy to isolate in the suburbs, at least relative to more population dense contexts. Right. And mm-hmm. and that's something that that we're constantly trying to overcome up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even just mm-hmm. recently in, in, preaching in our main services, and I talk about this all the time. I talk about the challenges of isolation and the epidemic of isolation and really the need for proactivity mm-hmm. to avoid mm-hmm isolation. Um, but the, the, what we constantly hear, hear back and that my wife and I and my children struggle with as well is just the, Mm -hmm. how do you fit kind of creating space for people in the midst of a busy life? And I, and I want to, I I guess ask, I mean, you and your husband both have demanding careers. You have four children. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's obviously plenty to keep you busy (laughs) right right there. Uh, what are some practices you've found helpful in avoiding isolation in the midst of a busy family life? 
Mm -hmm. Walking has been the primary thing for me, and we live in a pretty walkable area, so I realize not everybody does, but even, um, you know, choosing to be out front instead of in your backyard, um, or choosing to, we walk our kids to their local school. And so like you actually see people doing that and you see people. And so it's easy to kind of get this idea of where I think I live and what I think people are like, um, especially if you just like read the drama on a like, neighborhood Facebook group, um, <laughs> which there's a lot of drama oh, yeah. here. We, we, we've and, got that here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, so I think that there, there's a, there's a way for you probably to think about, okay, what in between spaces might I look to that will slow me down, that will help me actually see where I live. Mm. Um, and so for me, that's been walking, um, I walking our kids to school or going for walks to actually see where I live. So I don't start characterizing it differently than yeah. it is in reality. Mm. Um, and to pray for, pray for divine appointments and to pray that, um, you know, God would humble people, that he would bring people to himself, that, that becomes kind of part of my time with God as yeah. well. Yeah. I love that. The idea of, of walking really so you can see, because there's so much that we, mm -hmm. we can miss if all we do is just kind of drive through, get in the garage, put down the garage. Right. And I mean, prayer is an opportunity not only to invite God's blessings upon your neighbors, but to really, God uses prayer to develop a heart for right. our neighbors and neighborhoods, right? So exactly. Um, that's and even just something small, like, okay, every Friday afternoon, like when I get home from work, I'm going to like walk around my neighborhood for half an hour or, you know, and just mm. say hi to people as they're coming home from work. And it doesn't yeah. have to be like you're sharing the gospel with them, sure. but it begins to develop a fabric of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And those small acts of intentionality. I mean, I, I like to use the language of, of kind of your building infrastructure, so to speak, mm. uh, yeah, so that great. when... Uh, like those casual conversations where I'm chatting with my neighbor about uh, his favorite football team or my favorite basketball team, it might seem pointless, but it's building infrastructure and building relationships right. so that when the big moments come, it's like, oh, exactly. okay, there's someone I can talk to. And and I think exactly. sometimes in the Christian world, we can we can undervalue that process yeah. of, of creating right. infrastructure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel like when I talk to a lot of my suburban peers, uh, we, we've touched on this in, in this conversation here already, but there's it just seems like there's all this weird pressure <laughs> to mm -hmm. conform or to live up to certain standards. I mean, the, the pressure to kind of keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, mm -hmm. is a is a very real thing. Why is that power, in your opinion, so strong in the suburbs? Why are so many of us feeling this weird mm -hmm. pressure to conform? Because what's odd to me about it is there's this pressure to conform to a standard that's not very clearly defined, <laughs> right. which to me is sort of this recipe for anxiety. But but why do you think yes. that pressure is so strong? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with our actual suburban geography. Um, you know, just thinking about, for instance, our old home in Salt Lake City, where we um, had lived for a few years, my husband did college ministry there. Um, you know, there's houses, all different sizes, all different price points, you know, hundreds, like hundred years old. And you could always find, no matter how big or grand your house was, for instance, yeah. you could, you, it had character. Yeah. And when you get to the suburbs and where we live in a master plan community, that's about 20 years old, you know, what defines you or what looks like success is bigger and better and newer. Yeah. Um, and there isn't anything that's necessarily as individualistic, even about where we live. Hmm, and so I think what that does is it primes us to kind of look for 
to look to be loved and seen and known, but we do it through what does our place tell us how to do that? Hmm. And our place here, at least where I live, you know, is in the upgraded kitchen and the fancy vacation um, and all in, you know, how busy your kids are and what scores they get on their SATs. And these become markers of belonging and markers of I've done a good job. I'm, I'm valuable. Um, and so I think even just recognizing, okay, these are the things that fashion us towards this story. This story is like a moving walkway and a treadmill that I can never get off of. Yeah. And the question for us as Christians is what small practices do we do? What community are we a part of that tells us the different story, the story of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for us. He loves us. He calls us his children and we get to live from that sense of belovedness for the good of other people. Like that actually allows us to be free instead of trying to like hustle, right. And get the bigger house and the the vacation uh, where we never feel like we're seen or valuable. Yeah. I feel like when I mean, and so much of this comes back to identity, right? When our, yeah. when our identity yeah. is secure, I think we feel less threatened by a lot yes. of what we see. Mm-hmm. Something I, I try to just think through in my own mind, and, and I'd be curious if you have any, any insight into this or, or, or just thoughts on it, is, is I, I, just, I want to learn how to celebrate others without feeling pressured by their success, you know? Oh, that's uh, so good, yeah. Your kid's a great <laughs> soccer player. I mm-hmm. celebrate that. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make me feel anything about my kid who is not as right. good, you know, just to give a hypothetical right. example. You're yeah. going on vacation. That's fantastic. You're going on vacation. You've decided to make this purchasing decision. Like, I, right. I don't know. Like, are there ways we can come alongside one another to celebrate <laughs> yeah. each other, but yeah. not feel this pressure of like somehow I'm less than or more than, or now I'm like, oh, you just remodeled your granite countertops. Well, that's right. making me insecure about my old ones. It's just right. like, Right. I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's just a, a practice that if we learn that, we can not only add value to others in the midst of their success, mm-hmm. but we can escape this weird suburban mindset of, of feeling pressure mm-hmm. to conform to it. Mm. Oh, I know. It's so hard. I just had a recent experience of this where, um, yeah, some a friend of ours invited us over for a play date with all of our young kindergarten girls and they had redone the whole house. And I was just like, <laughs> gosh, it, it, it just, I was, and then I was like feeling shamed and I was like praying and like, God, I thought I'd like work through all this stuff. <laughs> And you're like, they're never coming over to our house. Right. 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 Or like, yeah. And just feeling like, oh, I, or I would do so much better if I had that amount of space and all that nice stuff, like we would be so much more hospitable. Right. You know, right. Oh my gosh. You know, we justify our, you know, our covetousness and our envy and, oh, it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, I think part of it is got to know, okay, what are, to ask yourself, to identify your triggers. Mm, um, that's good. And so, it, yeah, it might be the big house. It might be your kid's athletic prowess. It might be, um, you know, I did well in school. And so if my kids don't perform as well as I did, I feel a little bit like something's wrong with me, you know? So, yeah. so evaluating, okay, in prayer, what are my triggers, yeah. um, is a great starting point. And then, um, not just avoiding those triggers, although it might be good for a while. Right. Um, like, Maybe you mute someone on social media or you decide to take social media off your phone for a while um, so that you're not like sucked into this trap of comparison and envy all the time. Um, So it might be good to do a little detox um, just to kind of recalibrate your hungers, right? Um, Because 
I say in the book, right, that um, healing always begins in the place of our hungers. And so what that means is, you know, when I'm hungry and for God's affection and desire, ultimately, it's easier, you know, right, to just look at someone's granite countertops and be like, man, I just want those. And if I had those, my life would be all cushy and amazing. (laughs) Um, And then I would serve organic meals and our family would be perfect. And I could just like, sit on a cloud. And, you know, I think, (laughs) I think we have to realize, okay, you know what, I'm really hungry for something. Am I going to the source of, of healing and real food, real bread? Or am I just like eating the Cheetos, you know, of like what the suburbs offers? Um, and so those are just a few starting points. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, it, it, it comes back in so many ways to this, just this sense of, I mean, we talked earlier when we were talking about buying just this sense of, of what am I asking these things around me to do for me yes, uh, to recognize yeah. that the various, I mean, I like living in the suburbs. There's a lot to like yeah. about it, but to recognize yeah. that these things sort of are what they are. And if we count on them for our ultimate fulfillment, they're just going to leave us longing. That's just how God right. has, has made us. And that's, again, grace yep. on his part because we're meant to find fulfillment right. in him. Yeah. Now, and so I think that's a good way to see, okay, when I find myself envying or comparisoning, com- com- when I find myself envying or comparing, like that's actually meant, that's a good thing to, right. Right, to lead me to, to the source yeah, and not source. like to shame me and tell me I'm doing it all wrong. Yeah, no, that's good. I want to ask you about hospitality real quick before we, yep. we wrap up. I really enjoyed uh, that chapter and, and kind of, I alluded to it a minute ago with my, my joke about, you know, the person with great houses isn't, isn't coming over to right. your house sort, sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> we, we hesitate to be hospitable. And I know I'm speaking for so many people in saying this, uh, because we feel like, oh, my house isn't good enough. My space isn't pretty enough. If people come over, mm-hmm. I need to serve them this like five course meal that is, right. you know, I need to put Martha mm-hmm. Stewart to shame here with the way that my mm-hmm. house looks. And, uh, What's odd to me about that is we all are so forgiving when we go over, at least in my experience, so forgiving when you go to other people's houses and then they're like, oh, house is a mess. So sorry. And we're like, whatever. We're just here to see you and happy to be there. But of course, we get very self-conscious about our own space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why do we get so insecure about our hospitality, do you think? And and how can we adjust our thinking so that we're more inclined to be hospitable? Mm. You know, I think in America, the house is really very much linked to our identity. Um, And so it's not just, you know, choices of decor, but we've kind of equated the house as this is who I am. And so to welcome someone into our houses feels like standing naked, right? Like, do I look okay? Um, Am I acceptable to you? And so I think there's probably an invitation for us to bring that to Jesus and to ask ourselves and to be gentle with ourselves too, and be like, okay, this is what's going on. Yeah, <clears throat> It's not just me and my obsession with granite countertops. Like I'm, you know, I'm worried honestly about will people think I'm okay? Yeah, And, you know, to, to deal with that in prayer mm-hmm. um, and then to realize, uh, you know, again and again, that we bring our identity back to Jesus and say, this is, this is where I am. This is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling super overwhelmed. And yet, God, you've been, you have been the source of hospitality. You created an Eden for us, you know, that you have continued to come and rescue your people throughout thousands of years that you came as a baby into this world, that the cross is the ultimate side of hospitality where Jesus offers him his whole body, his whole self uh, for, for us. And so, 
really, if my identity is rooted in you, and as I keep working towards it, you know, that my house is not really that big a deal, right? That, yeah. you know, when we, when we are, are thinking about others mm-hmm. and not obsessing over ourselves, then we can actually be hospitable. Yeah, that's good. And, and to think too about what are, if, if someone is invited into your space and they accept that invitation, it's almost like, what are they looking for? Mm-hmm. I don't know that people are looking for, well, I need to see perfect decorations. Uh, everything right. better be better be perfectly in place and the house better be spotless. Right. Like we're looking for belonging and attention and community. Right. And those are things we can provide right. even if, right. And you know, like we're all looking for, yeah, we're all looking just to be known, right. Yeah. And to be accepted. We're all like little children looking for love still. And, um, we get to offer that to people. Yeah. And yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of work you need to do to, right, to be able to do that. And, totally. Um, but you know, there's small things you can do, right? Like our house is, our, our house is smaller than most where we live. And so, you know, having more people over for dessert or, um, I don't know, like orders and everyone's standing up. Like there's ways to yeah. be creative with our spaces uh, that still provides welcome because I think we can easily just say, eh, it's not up to snuff and therefore it's not worthwhile. Yeah, no, that's, that's well said. Uh, so I have one last question, but before I get to that, uh, we've talked about the book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. We've talked about the podcast. Uh, how else can people hear about what you're up to or what else are you working on that, uh, that yeah. our, our listeners can, can know about? Yeah, well, the main hub where you can find out all more about the podcast and all that is at aahales.com. And I also have a fun little thing for churches that I just put on my website. It's at aahales.com slash for churches, all one word, um, where I just kind of give you some resources, both for small group material or um, different sort of group workshops and things that are available as well. So that might be something really fun too for your listeners to follow up with the book. Awesome. Okay. AAHales.com and uh, check out that uh, Four Churches tab. We're going to be sharing that information with our missional community leaders uh, for sure in the very, very near future. Now, in the end, this is a super broad question to end with, and I'll just preface it with that. But, but if you could just speak to, in the end, what are you hoping to accomplish uh, with a book like this? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was speaking to a, another writer friend and I was saying, you know, my, it's kind of audacious and I'm working on another book right now. And, you know, as I'm, I'm working through things, it's, you know, I both want to tell great stories and I want to be like theologically and intellectually rigorous and rich. And I want to provide people practical starting points and realize, oh my gosh, well, I'm like, is this, is this going to work? You know, yeah. this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, and yet really what I want to do with all of those kind of different pieces um, is I would love to continue to incite the Christian imagination towards yeah. the story of the gospel, right? That, you know, it's not simply what to do and what not to do, um, but I would love for more people to fall in love with Jesus and to actually try to change their lives a little bit, to participate with the spirit of God in their formation um, in a world that wants to draw us into any other thing or just distract us yeah. than um, into the story of Jesus. And it's super scary to say, actually, I am banking my entire existence and my life that this story is true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's well said. And that's, that's beautiful. The, um, I mean, I just think about how much in, in, in my own processing of this book, I mean, it's, it's such a unique book. I don't, I don't feel like there are a lot of people writing uniquely about 
the suburbs <laughs> right now, uh, yeah, which is yeah. unfortunate because it is. It is. Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of us live in them. Um, yeah, like fifty percent of Americans. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> the book is. First, something I haven't even mentioned. I mean, it's beautifully written. Uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a beautifully written book, uh, but it's also very accessible and and understandable and practical. And and I feel like you do such a good job of being honest and vulnerable about kind of hey, I'm 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 figuring this stuff out too. <laughs> right, right. I'm I'm not the guru. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm-hmm. while also giving giving people like me, people like you know, I keep seeing copies of this book around our church, so it's it's getting out. Awesome. You know, get it giving yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, giving us just some real practical, simple ways that we can mm-hmm. draw closer to Jesus in the midst of suburban life. And that's a, mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously a very good thing. So, so thank mm-hmm. you for writing the book. It has been, um, and will continue to be transformative for me personally. And I know for a lot of people up here at Bridgeway and, and for our, hopefully for our listeners here on Engaging Culture. And, um, yeah, so thank you for writing the book and thank you so much for, for spending the time with us, uh, today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of Engaging Culture. Once again, you can catch up with uh, all that Ashley is up to at aahales.com. And the book is Finding Holy in the Suburbs, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. Pick it up wherever you get your books. Thanks to Lucian, Montana, and the rest of our crew for all their work behind the scenes. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Engaging Culture. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.